Well, it's certainly good to see you again, and I, I hope you missed me as much as my wife and I missed you, but probably not. Um, for those of you who are here for the first time, and I know there's four of you because I've, I've run into, and I won't name you, but um, the, uh, the format is I'm going to teach for the next 20, 35 minutes, Lord willing, and, um, but then there's a free dessert uh, that we, we kind of think is important, uh, important in the sense that not the caloric intake, but the, um, the opportunity to be with the body of Christ. And so we hope you'll stick around, uh, you know, mention my name and the dessert's free, um, and get you a dessert and, and, and enjoy the fellowship of God's people. So that, that's the way we, that's the format. Um, one other thing, uh, I'm glad you're here tonight, but uh, let me encourage you, I mean, you can miss the rest, but don't miss next week. If it works out, there is a treat that we have in store for you next week. And uh, I say treat, it's a, it's a little, <laughs> it's a little, um, it's a little edgy, um, and, and over the line, and maybe, uh, we'll see, um, but uh, I, I invite you, I encourage you to be with us next week, and then and the rest of them, you can just, you know, say, it's Jimmy, let's, let's stay home. Um, <clears throat> okay, but next week, don't miss next week. Um, guys, let's get back to the book of Galatians, we're, uh, if you don't recall, we're, it, we're all the way up to verse 24 of uh, chapter 4, but let me, before I read that, uh, that text to you, let me acknowledge that I, um, I have blundered. Um, I, I, I made a mistake, guys. I should have never stopped in the middle of something, which I did. Uh, I, we introduced verse 24, and we never finished verse 24, and now we've got to go back to t- verse 24. And to fix the, the mess that I've made, I, I've got to begin with the kind of a and it will be brief, but a very brief word of what I was talking about three months ago, which um, shouldn't be a real problem because people don't really remember what I said three days ago, much less three months ago. So uh, the only one remembers me, but, uh, but let me tell you where we were, okay, and just to kind of get us a, a running start to get this ball rolling again. Um, uh, we're in the middle of... Um, a study of the book of Galatians where Paul is defending the doctrine of justification by faith in a, in a thousand different ways. Um, but we came to verse 24, and I'll read it to you now. Uh, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. <laughs> uh, I laugh because I, I know you're just saying, what the heck is that? Uh, and we're going to try to sort it out and, and have uh, at least made some strides uh, what I did last, uh, I mean, before I, I got the summer off, um, is that I, I, I drew your attention to the, to the term two covenants in verse 24. Uh, you may remember that. It's a huge thing. There's not seven covenants. There's two covenants. Um, uh, and, and in fact, I even discussed them briefly uh, Sunday morning. You remember uh, that uh, um, Hebrews chapter 8 is talking about the replacement of the old covenant with the new covenant. And uh, that's the two covenants. And, uh, and I told you then, and, and Lord willing, I hope to um, make good on this, um, that we'll have a course in Gigi on covenantal theology. But, uh, you know, it's just kind of hard to cover it in, in 35 minutes. Okay, but that's what we introduced. Um, and I'm, uh, when I introduced this whole idea of two covenants, I made a big deal. I made a big deal out of telling you that the covenant of grace is a unilateral covenant. And I, I just hammered the word unilateral, unilateral, monergistic, monergistic, unilateral, unilateral. 
um, and it was reflected, that unilateral nature of the, co- of the new covenant is reflected in our text last week in Hebrews, where when God says, I will put, I will put my law in your heart. Not, um, if you give me permission, uh, I, it really would be nice if I could do that. No, God unilaterally says, I will put. And, and, and I, I introduce you this whole idea of the unilateralness of, uh, of the new covenant. Okay. But then I go home and I start thinking, oh my goodness, that word, after I've made such a big deal out of the word unilateral, I'm, I'm, um, I, I fear that we get all twisted up in our little minds uh, about, um, about that term. And, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking um, maybe they're going to make this leap that all of Christianity, my whole Christian life, is unilateral. That is, I just wait for God to do something uh, while I twiddle my little spiritual thumbs. And so with that fear in mind, I came back to you and tried to sort some of that out and, and tried to tell you of the, the bilateral nature or the synergistic nature of, of, of sanctification. I know you remember all that wonderful information that I doled out last, uh, last spring. That's, what we, that's where we were. To that discussion, I want to add one quick little more snippet, and then we'll move on to some new material. Um, I, and, and I hope that you'll uh, follow in your copies of God's Word with me, but let, let me draw your attention to one statement that's made in the book of Titus. Titus. Guys, uh, remember I tried to tell you that there is, there is this thing... Um, that I called, I'm not sure my terms are correct, but I called it the grace movement. And, they, um, and, and, and by the way, guys, I love a, a grace, a gospel driven by grace without any smidgen of works to it. But this grace movement has taken that thing and gone to seed with it such that it uh, abominates anything that um, calls you to exert any effort. But anyway, um, but I, I wanted to just add this statement, this is in Titus chapter 2, to what I said last fall, uh, spring, and maybe, maybe this will somewhat jog your memory as to what we said. It's in verse 11, Titus 2 verse 11. Uh, uh, Paul says to Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I draw you here for this purpose, ladies and gentlemen. Notice, it says that grace has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. Uh, And then drop down to verse 12. Training us. That grace of God that has has appeared, it trains us. It instructs us. It teaches us. What does it teach? How does it train us? Well... To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Gang, the gospel of grace has a moral shape to it. It doesn't stupefy one's eagerness to be Christ-like. It enlivens it. When grace shows up, this gospel of grace, it enlivens our efforts to live um, a holy life. It doesn't dampen it. Grace has appeared, and it trains us. It trains us to live, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion, and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. That's what grace does. 
Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, grace has a moral shape to it. We preach a gospel of grace without works. But we go on to say that that, the reality of that grace is evidenced by works. And and guys, um, that is a Scylla and Charybdis. I've introduced you. That's an idiom. Scylla and Charybdis, it's it's an idiom that comes from Greek mythology about sailing in between a rock and a whirlpool. And um, you've got, um, there's, there's a way through this thing, but it's very difficult. It's a narrow path between two bad choices. Um, between, you know, we, we've got a, say, a, a saying in, in now where we say, it's between a rock and a hard place. I'm between a rock and a hard place. Well, guys, maintaining that distinction, that is, a gospel of pure grace without works, and yet one that is evidenced by works. You can't go too far in that direction, too far in that direction. You've got to steer right through the middle. It's a skill in Charybdis. It's a rock in a hard place. And that's what I was trying to um, clarify as we closed in the spring. Okay? So that's, uh, that's the summary, and now we can move on to some new things in um, in Galatians chapter 4, there is one thing in there that I want to cover tonight, and then we'll, we'll go further. I'm hoping that what I say tonight will help you for next week. Um, back to verse 24, Galatians 4. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. I, I, I drew your attention to that, those, those words. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Because what the Apostle Paul is doing there is, is, is giving you a bit of training as to how to read your Old Testaments. Um... I mentioned that, but I didn't develop it, and I want to develop it tonight um, uh, because I'm hoping it will, as I said, help us to understand this stuff that that, that follows. Um, By the way, I should point out also that the book of Hebrews is doing the same thing. Uh, I read it to you Sunday morning. When, when This is uh, Hebrews 8, 5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Do you see what's going on, guys? There's a reality in heaven, and there's something on earth that's a copy and a shadow of that. This thing that's down here on earth is supposed to teach you something about a reality in heaven. And so you have to look at this concrete reality and oftentimes interpret it allegorically. For instance, the temple. You know, and how it was arranged, the holy place, and the holy place. Gang, that temple was a real place, but there's a message in the building now, what I want to do tonight is, is use the rest of my time. I want, to, I want to close out the evening by trying to help you do that. Interpret allegorically. I want to try and help you um, <clears throat> better understand how to interpret your own Old Testaments. Because as Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, this can be interpreted allegorically. Uh-huh. And he's referring to an event. He's referring to Abraham and his wife Sarah who have two kids. One's Ishmael, one's Isaac. And he's saying that historical event is something that has an allegorical thrust to it that you you just cannot miss. Don't miss it. And that's what we'll come back and do next week. But what I want to do is give you another example which I think is easier. And I, and I want to I show you what I mean by interpreting allegorically. 
okay? To do that, I'm going to allude to an Old Testament um, uh, provision known as the cities of refuge. (laughs) You know, it's so interesting to me because the cities of refuge, um, I found five times, um, are mentioned five times in the Old Testament. Um, Hold on. Uh, Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 4, Joshua 20, Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 19. Five times are the cities of refuge mentioned. And every time I mention the cities of refuge, people say, well, I've never heard of that. Well, they mentioned five times in the Old Testament, ladies and gentlemen, cities of refuge. Now, now if, if Jason has this blasted board uh, working, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, draw another one of my famous diagrams uh, which will, it's just going to thrill you with my artistic abilities. But um, let's see how it's, it goes like this. Oh, it's, it's not working. Oh, look at there. There it is. All right. All right. Are you with me still? Okay. Uh, this is the Red Sea down here. This is the Mediterranean Sea up here. Uh, this is Eilat, where I was in April, and right around in here, this is, don't hold me to this, but right around in there is the Dead Sea, all right? And then coming out of the Dead Sea, and it's right on this border here, it comes up here to the Sea of Galilee, all right? Now, when Joshua was leading Israel, uh, that's Israel, by the way, that's a picture of Israel. I mean, I know Jerusalem's kind of right in there, um, Tel Aviv is right over here, um, I lots down there. Anyway, uh, um, anyway, that's the Sea of Galilee where Jesus did all his miracles right up there, right there. Sea of Galilee and the um, um, Golan Heights are right in here. Syria is over here today. But when Joshua was leading Israel, now this Moses brought him out of Egypt. He dies. Joshua's in charge. Israel was bigger than that. They had some property over here that was called the Transjordan. That is, on the other side, this is the Jordan River right here, okay, right there. Uh, This is the Transjordan, or uh, uh, the other side of Jordan, there there was some property that they had, and remember, there were two and a half tribes that settled over here. It was the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh settled over here, okay? They did not, you know, Jericho is, um, Jericho is like right here. They didn't cross over into the promised land. They wanted to stay over here. Got that? There were two and a half tribes, Gadites, Reubenites, Reubenites, and um, the half tribe of Manasseh, okay? All right. With this excellent diagram of Israel staring at you, let me tell you what the cities of refuge were. Moses, uh, God instructs Moses that once they get into the promised land, that um, Levites were to be given 48 cities. Levites, the clergy, the professional clergy. They were supposed to be given 48 cities. Six of those 48 cities were to be designated as cities of refuge. By the way, if you'd like to, to look at all this, the best place to go is Numbers 35, uh, that's the lengthiest passage describing the cities of refuge, okay? <clears throat> okay, um, we've come up from Egypt, we're, and they came up on this side of the Jordan, and they defeated Og and, you know, those two kings over here, 
And they conquered this. And so two and a half of the tribes say, hey, Moses, can we stay over here? Because it's really good for our cattle. And Moses goes to God. And God says, yeah, you can stay over here. But then they come over here and fight. And Joshua brings them to Jericho. And they fight all these people. And this is Israel. And you got it. Okay? But the Levites were to be given 48 cities. And out of those 48 cities, six of them were to be designated as cities of refuge. There were supposed to be three on this side of the Jordan, in the north, in the center, and in the south. And on that side of Jordan, that side of the Jordan River, there were to be three, one in the north, one in the center, and one in the south. There were to be six cities of refuge. Now, um, that's where the Levites lived, but these six cities had a particular function. You know, this is, this is so rich, ladies and gentlemen, and, and, and I hope you've heard of it before. But, um, okay, what was the function of the six cities of refuge? Well, actually, I think it's one, one, of, the, one of the passages, one of those five, I think it's Deuteronomy 19 that says, let's say you're out in the field one day, and you're chopping down some trees, and your axe handle flies off of your axe, and hits the guy next to you in the head and kills him. That means you've just taken a life. You are a manslayer. But what you've done was very unintentional. I don't know, I wasn't trying to kill him. It wasn't premeditated. I didn't, you know, hate him and, and, and uh, lurk into the bushes and wait until he comes over there and just whack him. Uh, no, 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 no. It was completely unintentional. So let's say... You lived over here, and you just killed somebody. Then you, at that point, um, your life is now threatened by what was known as the avenger of blood. The guy that you killed has a close relative, and he now can uh, come and um, take your life. But instead of that, you can flee to one of the cities of refuge. And there you are safe. Now, while you're there at the city of refuge, there's going to be a court trial that takes place to make sure that you did not murder. Um, and by the way, all of the rules of evidence are given to you in Numbers chapter 35. The way the courtroom case is going to go, it's outlined for you in Numbers 35. And, and what evidence you're supposed to bring and how many witnesses you're supposed to bring and all that business. But if you make it to the city of refuge, and there's six of them, one in the north, one in the center, one in the south, one in the, three, three over here, three over there, three on this side of the Jordan, three on this side of the Jordan. If you make it to a city of refuge, you're safe. Now, guys, um, if you haven't turned there yet, let's turn there now. Go go to um, Numbers 35. Okay, so you're a manslayer, slayer, and you just kill this guy, and you drop all your supplies, and you head to the, the city of refuge, and the avenger of blood gets word that you've killed his brother, and he's after you. But you beat him. 
to the city of refuge. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, this is not fantasy. This is not hyperbole. This is not fairy tale. Israel was set up just like that. <clears throat> Maybe a little different, but um, with 48 cities for the Levites, six of which, they were real cities. They're even named. Six cities. of They were real cities with real walls. And if you got to one of them before the avenger of blood got you, you were safe. Until your trial came up. And if your trial proved that you were innocent and that you killed without premeditation and um, unintentionally, then you were allowed to live in the city of refuge for the rest of your life um, safe. Now, let's say you get homesick and you decide, I'm going to go visit Aunt Martha for Thanksgiving and you leave the city of refuge, and you head over here. And the avenger of blood finds you over here, he can kill you. As long as you stay in the city of refuge, though, you're safe. You're okay. When the, when the court trial takes place and, and proves and, and, and demonstrates that you didn't do this on purpose, you have refuge <clears throat> in the city of refuge. Now, gang. There are several lessons that we could learn just from this. Just from this. For instance, you can learn the lesson of capital punishment. (laughs) Israel very definitely, or God provided capital punishment 40 times in the Old Testament. Um, Another thing you could could take just from this, you could say um, that God is a God of justice. That you can't, you can't kill that guy if he accidentally... Now, if he premeditatedly killed your brother, oh, God's different story. But, but um, God insists upon justice. Israel is a holy place, not because Israel lives there, but because God does. And so justice is going to be the law of the land. He's going to insist on it. And one of the provisions to, to, to uh, make for a culture of uh, justice were the cities of refuge. Now, you've made it to the city of refuge. It's been proved that you're, you're not a murderer, that it was unintentional, it was accidental, oops. <clears throat> but you still took a life. And so your, 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 your freedoms are going to be limited because you're going to have to live in the city of refuge. Until. Look at it, ladies and gentlemen. You've got to have your Bibles open to Numbers chapter 35. And um, I'm going to read you one verse. Numbers 35, 25. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the, con- and the, hand of the, uh, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled, and he shall live in it. Look at it! Until the death of the high priest. Over here in Jerusalem, there's this high priest. Let's just say his name's Caiaphas. And Caiaphas has a heart attack. And I'm living in the city of refuge. 
Oh, he's up here running everything in Jerusalem, you know? He's got the, he's got the big job. He's the Pope of, um, of uh, Judaism. But Caiaphas has a heart attack, drops dead. The high priest died. At that moment, the manslayer who made his way to the city of refuge is now legally allowed to leave the city of refuge, go back to his hometown, and the avenger of blood cannot touch him. What a great provision. What a piece of abject genius on the part of God. Gang, everything that I've told you is, is, is one of the provisions that God made for Israel for her to, to um, enjoy a sane and just and responsible society. However, this can be interpreted allegorically. Remember, that's right out of Galatians 4.24. This can be interpreted. I mean, it's, it's historical. It's factual. And it's got lessons for us to learn at that level. But guys, there's another level to this. And it has to do with the death. Of the high priest. Because you see ladies and gentlemen. When the high priest dies. Sinners. Guilty sinners. Are set free. (laughs) Gang. If you read these five passages about the cities of refuge. And you miss that then you miss the point of the cities of refuge because the whole thrust of the cities of refuge, yes, provide justice, yes, to enforce capital punishment, yes, 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 yes. But there's another richer, deeper meaning underneath it. And it all swirls around the Death of the high priest. Gang, when high priests die, the result is freedom from bondage. The death of those high priests do nothing more than point us all to another high priest. The great high priest, the one who is the focus of the book of Hebrews, whose priesthood is better than the Aaronic Levitical priesthood. And ladies and gentlemen, when that high priest died, his name was Jesus, after the order of Melchizedek, who has an eternal priesthood, Because he doesn't die. Uh, Who's effective when the other one didn't work. 
when that high priest died, sinners got set free. Guilty sinners. The people in the city of refuge were guilty. That, that, wasn't, the, that, wasn't, the, that wasn't the point. They were all guilty. Yeah, you killed somebody. But once the high priest died, they were set free. And every time I look at a city of refuge, ladies and gentlemen, it ought to take me straight to Jesus Christ. Everything in me ought to rise up and rejoice that the high priest died. And now I'm set free. Now, one more thing, and then I'll quit. Guys, you know, I try to, I try to, I try to encourage you, don't come see Jimmy Young if you've got problems, because you're just going to get yourself in bigger trouble. I mean, that boy doesn't know what he's talking about. Stay away from him. He's toxic. Um, in, the, in a counseling setting, you don't want him. But you know what? I, 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 you're not listening. Because people still come. And I think, I tried to tell you to go find somebody that knows what they're talking about. Don't come to me. But one of the things that I, that I hear, um, to the point that I absolutely want to pull my hair out. Is that people will say things like this. They will say, well, <laughs> well I know, I know that you know, what I did was terrible and I know, I know that God forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. Ladies and gentlemen, has somebody told you yet that the high priest has died? Why are you still living in that city? You're free to go. Why are you still living there? Gold. Dr. Young, what I did was terrible. I'll never get over it. The shame haunts me to this day of what I did. I can't tell you how many times people have said that to me. And, I, and, I, and I, I, I'll say this, I don't because I hate to even mention it because somebody in here has had an abortion and you're gonna, it's going to all come flooding back to you. And I don't mean to do that. But one of the issues that comes up rather repeatedly is that somebody had an abortion. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry you had an abortion. It's murder and I do not want to in any way minimize or mitigate or, or lessen it. It was wrong. It's bad. I'm sorry you did it. But... Has somebody told you that the high priest died? Has somebody gotten to you yet and told you that Caiaphas died? If they have, then what the devil are you doing still living in the city of refuge? The high priest died. You don't need me to live with that anymore. You don't need to live with shame and guilt. It's like you've taken a permanent residence in a city of refuge. You can leave. You can go now. 
Why? Because the high priest died. Did you know that? Has somebody told you that yet? Because sometimes I want to run to you and say, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. Please listen to me. The high priest died. Go. You're set free from all that. Why do you choose to stay living in there when because of the death of Jesus Christ you've been set free? Ladies and gentlemen, you know what I just did? I interpreted this story allegorically. Just like the Apostle Paul told me to in Galatians chapter 4, verse 24. He told me to interpret it that way. (laughs) And when I see language like, until the death of the high priest, I don't think about cities of refuge. I think about Christ and him crucified. The great high priest has died and he has set me free. Why don't you, why don't you, why do you, why do you choose to, to live in that city when you don't have to? Why do you choose to keep pouring over your own guilt and shame? I guess it's because you just don't know that the high priest has died. Because if you knew that, then you'd run out the city gates. Free, free, I'm set free. What, what, what freed you? Oh, the high priest died. And because he has, I no longer need to live in any kind of bondage. Gang, that's the message of the gospel. Because Jesus Christ has died, we have been set free. We've all got some skeletons in our closets. Don't we? But that's what they need to remain. A skeleton in my closet. I don't need to go back there anymore. I'm free. I'm free from that stuff. And so are you. If you are trusting in Christ and Him only to deliver you from your sin, ladies and gentlemen, I got some great news. He died. And we are now free. That, ladies and gentlemen, is to interpret an Old Testament story allegorically. And you're going to need the lessons that I just gave you on how to handle a story in the Old Testament when we proceed in Galatians 4. Because it's far more complex than that one. Let's quit. Our Father, I thank you for the privilege that is mine to announce to a congregation that the, that the high priest has died. That the guilt and the shame I need no longer allow to torment me because what I did, as bad as it was, and it was bad, as great as my sin is, my Savior is greater. Um, and Father, I pray that if you have brought somebody here tonight who has been living in bondage even with a recognition of Christ's death and his resurrection. Would you tonight use this simple story to set them free? Somebody has 
has run to their city and has shouted as loud as he could, the high priest has died, the high priest has died, the high priest has died. And so would you now let them, would you allow them to leave that bondage that they've been in way too long and walk in the liberty that is ours because of Christ and him crucified? Lord, um, thank you for your word. Give us wisdom in, in handling it aright. And uh, as we do, Lord, would you make us into people more zealously committed and more conformed to Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. We are sorry we love you so little. But would you grant us grace to love you more? We ask it all, of course, in Jesus' name.